we need to try to capture some of this information. Who's going to volunteer for what? Okay. Any ways the Lord appear? Mark. Harris. Michael. All the ladies here. Should I have been Marianne Bardo? <laughs> Any anything? Sorry, only allowed one. Mike. In terms of the way the Lord appeared? Mumkin, the way the Lord appeared. Keep track of it. Yeah, we already saw one way, one vision. We saw one vision how the Lord appeared. Because every church now, the Lord is going to appear in a different way for this church. And everyone has a different meaning. But we just want to care about how the Lord appeared. Right? And throughout this whole. Revelations, Lord is going to appear in different ways, and each one of them has a spe- specific significance and a meaning, and you know, comforting thoughts, Lena. I, I came in. With, That's okay. <laughs> I kind of missed what you said. What do you want us to do? I see. We need to keep track of the following, but is that like during Bible study? Or we just during, for the book of Revelation. During Bible study, for the book of Revelation. So you have to do research. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, just have to keep, you know, you have to be awake, and when we, you just have to be awake, and when we talk about this, you write it down. Oh, I, okay, I can do that, um, but I would have to work with someone, because I'm not doing it. Yeah. So what was taken? Wait, <laughs> I was here. Oh, okay. Okay. So somebody has to fill her in on, you know, the Alpha, the Omega, and some of the other things we talked about in the beginning. Oh, is there anything yeah. that wasn't... That's okay, not too much. Don't worry, there's plenty coming. Okay. <laughs> yeah, today we cut one Namasan in the long robe that the priest wears, dressed in white, the golden stuff, you know, golden trims and so on, some of these things. Well, uh, <laughs> Okay, got it. <laughs> nah, I don't do anything. I'm just here to give you guys a hard time and that's it. See, the idea is, I let you guys work and I come here and sit down and watch. The last one, comforting promises. That should be easy. <laughs> okay. So you need to go at least for sh- through chapter one and find what kind of you know promises. Oh, agree to this. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Didn't agree to what? Chapter one or chapter two or? <laughs> no, no, no. Watching is boring. Watching makes you sleep. So you need to be active. All right. Let's let's say you're gonna at least try for the comforting promises. Okay. 
So, what is chapter 2? In chapter 2, this is the first vision, and the first vision is, you know, basically talks, as Christ said, about the churches, seven churches and seven bishops of these churches. Uh, we're going to cover, hopefully we'll try to cover at least two churches, Ephesus and Smyrna, if not, uh, and uh, Pergamus, hopefully. Chapter 2 covers four, four churches, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, and Theatra. Um, if you can listen to Arabic sermons, you have to listen to the Pope's sermons on the book of Revelation. Are they on the CD here? They are on the CD. Oh, <laughs> right. And they should be on the website. The idea is to put the CDs on the website and make the links accessible for everybody on our website so we can all access that. He spends at least an hour and a half to three hours talking about one church and the spiritual aspects of the church. Great, great, great sermons. Should not miss them. Okay. Is our church likened to one of the churches already? Which one? Don't they each symbolize something in today's world or not? Here's the answer. Good question, uh, Mark. And I didn't pay him to ask this question. Uh, so what are the churches? We can take them as literal churches. These are the seven churches that Christ mentioned in the, the beginning, Ephesus, Smyrna, and, you know, and so on, that we saw their location in Asia Minor. And if you guys don't remember that, let me remind you where that was. All are in Turkey. Not Thanksgiving Turkey, but this Turkey. Right. So here is, you know, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Theatre, Sardis, Philadelphia. These are the seven churches. And Saint John was exiled in this island called Patmos here. Just a random question. Do any of those churches, even remnants of them, still exist, or are there actually churches? as ruins? As ruins? Yes. Are there Christians there still, or not? No. Unfortunately, no. Turkey today, as it used to be, all Christian, all Muslims. Actually, like you know, the remainder who are Christians count in the thousands, not in the millions. You know, I think population of Turkey is like 60 million or 70 million, somewhere in that range, and the Christians there number in the thousands. Actually, the dilemma for the Greek church is that to ordain, a, you know, patriarch. It has to be from Constantinople, so you know, some it has to be from, like from the very few, the thousands that are in, left in Turkey right now. Are you kidding? No, it's very weird. All right, so every church, uh, okay, these churches can be literal. I said these seven churches, they can be taken as these are different eras at the church history. They can be taken as symbolic. It's a state that any church can be in or can be taken on a personal level that that's my state as a person. I can be in any of these states. I can be going to persecution. I can be lukewarm. I can be, you know, forgetting my first love to Christ. And I can be any of these things. And that's what we care about. You know, uh, these churches, they stopped existing, you know, 17, 1800 years ago. So there's no benefit for us to study old history. But a lot of benefit for us to study what does that mean for us spiritually? How can we benefit from that? How can we grow spiritually? How can we become better Christians and more close to Christ? 
in these things. In every church, and that was your homework from last time, which I'm sure you did diligently. Uh, no, actually, that's not. The, the, the Lord appears to every church in different ways. Uh, if we take a sneak preview at the end. Every church has a problem that faces the church. Christ appears to this church in a different way. Right? He tells them about the problem. He gives them the remedy, how to fix this problem. And he gives them a warning if they don't heed, you know, they don't take the remedy, they don't change their status, what's going to happen to them. And if they do fix their problem, what is the ultimate reward that they're going to get? Right? And I gave you the blank sheet and you were supposed to fill it in. So we can go. Right. So if we look at these churches from a historical point of view, which really, again, not really accurate, so you should take that with a grain of salt and you should not ask, so which church we're in right now and, you know, all these things. Again, that's what some people thought these things represent. So the first church, Ephesus, means the beloved. Uh, and that represents the early church, you know, the apostolic church. Smyrna, bitter, period of persecution. Pergamus, the word, perga- you know, uh, monogamy, pergamus, same same root. So that means, you know, marriage. So the church and state are married together and rely on each other. Theatra, theater, theatrical appearance, you know, showing off and external appearance. And the nice thing is that uh, I remember going to Europe some time ago and I went to visit the monasteries in, in Germany. Turn out Germany has a lot of monasteries. When you go to these monasteries, extremely beautiful. The columns, you know, you know, one meter you know, thick and it's like, you know, leaves going up all the way to the top and, and wonderful marble all over the place and, and great. Where are they? They were Catholic, Germany. Catholic, yeah. But these monasteries are empty and there are only museums and visiting, there are no monks living there. Venice, that visit to Europe, I went back to, you know, and of course, if you go to a place like Vienna and, you know, all these places, wonderful, wonderful churches, you know, I'm sure Italy has, you know, a lot of great churches. Then I went to Egypt, I went to the monastery, and I find out churches pale, dull, and from the appearance. If you compare them to, for example, if you compare them to the big cathedrals in Europe, Beauty. Well, that's not really the reason why. And I did have a, you know a discussion with one of the monks you know about this particular you know, and I asked him because this particular monk who's studying you know studied uh, Coptic art and went to Holland. He spent six or you know month to a year there studying you know the Coptic art and you know restoration of. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, archaeology and so on, and, and Coptic art, and came back to, to do excavation, and he found a lot of uh, the old cells for the monks around the Syrian monastery, the late Amasamuil. Um, so I asked him, why is our churches look so pale compared to the you know European churches that are full of you know nice theatrical looking you know churches? And his answer was, all the glory of the king's daughter is from the inside. He said, we do not deliberately do not 
exaggerate in the beauty of the buildings to keep the spirituality in. If we indulge in, you know, in making the buildings so beautiful, we will forget the spirituality and we need to keep the spirituality inside. So maybe that was, you know, one of the churches that went through a theatrical appearances more than spiritual content. Sardis means the remainder, you know, pe- people leaving the church due to weakness. And this can be at, all, at any time, by the way. You know, if you think about it, this always happening. You can find some churches that are theatrical. You can find some churches that, you know, people are leaving the churches. You can find, you know, a church and state. And you can look at all these churches and look at the United States right now. And you're going to find all these churches right here in the United States all happening at the same time. Some churches, like the Catholic Church, people are leaving the church. Other churches are more theatrical. Just open the TV on Sunday morning and look at all these, you know, theatrical shows on TV. And they call them churches. And, uh, you know, the influence of the church on the politics and, you know, the Bush, Bush administration and how they're trying to influence politics and change that, you know, is that pergamous? I don't know. Okay. And we cannot say that this is this church, but it's a spiritual state of a church. Okay. Philadelphia, brotherly love, unity in the church, and Laodicea, rule of the people, and followed, <coughs> follow the will of the people. Again, these churches can be at any time, can represent sequential, you know, sequence of events happen in a sequential way, and most importantly can represent each one of us at certain times of our life, or maybe at, you know, we represent only one church, hopefully, not all of them. All right. Okay, so the main thing, examine your life with every church and find out whether you have this problem or not. And if you have the problem, what is the remedy? How can we fix our, our hearts? How can we fix our lives so we get the reward that Christ promised? We're all in for the reward, right? Nobody wants to do something without a reward. Okay, so what the first church, the church of Ephesus. Okay. Why don't we just read the church of Ephesus, the story of it, and then we explain what it is. Okay? Who's going to read? Okay. The angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered in your patience, and have labored for the name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, the great of fallen. Repent, and do the first works, for else I will come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you meet the deeds of the creations, which I also do. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst, midst of the paradise. Okay. All right. So, the, uh, 
a very simple story. This church, the bishop of this church lost, lost his first love to Christ. And later on, I'm going to see another church that's lukewarm. He has an excellent work. He did a wonderful job. Uh, he has a lot of good deeds. And, but Christ has to him, against him, that he forgot or, you know, forsake the first love. The Lord appeared holding the seven bishops in his hand, seven stars. So again, this is not a human being who can hold seven people or seven stars or seven planets in a hand. There's no such hand that can hold seven people or seven planets or seven stars. So it's all symbolic, again, uh, representation. Uh, some people say that this probably would ha- was, you know, St. Timothy, whom Saint, the disciple of St. Paul, or, you know, his follower, that were in the church of Ephesus. Okay. Right. The angel of the church of Ephesus writes, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, says these things. Right. So why does God appear as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. Again, the way God appears, the way the Lord appears, is directly related to the problem the church has. So the church, what what's the problem the church have? Lost first love. The Lord appears as walking in the midst of the churches and holding the seven bishops in his right hand. What's the relationship? He's holding exactly. He holds everybody in his right hand, and the right hand represents strength, represents you know uh, the mighty hand of God. So he's protecting them, taking care of them, holding them close to him. Okay, walking between the churches means he's always caring about it. He did not forget them. He is always there, and he knows what's going on. First, he tells, he, he, you know, he talks about uh, the church, the bishop as an angel. And that's why in our church we refer to the priest of the church as the angel of the church. Uh, for example, our, who, who are the angels of this church? Abu Nafshoi, the angel of the church, Abu Nafshoi, Abu Nafshoi, Abu Antonius, Abu Mark. Not you, Mark, but Abu Mark Khan. Okay? So these are the angels of this church. Um, why an angel? Why is called an angel? What is the role of an angel? God's messenger. And that's the role of the you know the priest. That's the role of every servant. That's the role of every one of us. Is we are God's messengers. So we can call that everyone in this room right now are angels. Your job in your life is to go out and carry the message of God to everyone around you by your actions, by your deeds. And you guys are God's angels. Okay? Not like the show touched by an angel, but touched by any one of you, you know, in their daily life. Again, write to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write explicit instruction to write this message and deliver it to people. Right? So... Again, 
stars, again, some traditions, planets, uh, that's because they reflect God's glory and they shine to the world. So, as an angel and a star, the bishops or the priests or each one of the servants or each one of us are representative of Christ who's supposed to be shining to everyone, who's supposed to be carrying God's message to people. Right? And golden, as we said before, heavenly. Uh, we are living in the heavenlies, not on the earthly matters. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear those who are evil. That's the first thing that God know your work. Well, the question is, what kind of work do I have? When God tells me I know your work, will I be proud or will I be ashamed? So, I have to be careful about the work I do everywhere because God knows that work and God sees everything. And he also, God, when he starts talking to the angel, sending a message to the angel, he says, look, I know everything that you have done. You don't have to remind me. Even if you forgot what you have done as a good deed, I don't forget. As God said, I don't, you know, forget a cup of water for my name's sake. So every, every good deed you do, don't expect the reward from people here because you're doing it because who knows? Who knows? God. So don't get upset if you do something good and nobody admires you, nobody acknowledges the great work you're doing or the great contribution that you had in the, you know, into the meeting or to the service or to the whatever. God knows. Right? If you work hard, if you spend a night serving, if you prayed for someone, even you know, without them knowing, without anybody knowing, God knows. And he, you know, when Christ starts by saying that, I know your work, he eliminates, you know, the bishop's argument. Let's say, you know, God is going to start by telling him, I know that you have, you know, you've forsaken your first love. The bishop is going, oh, wait a minute, but I do, I've done this, I have, you know, labored for you, I have, you know, uh, I had patience, I don't bear evil. He's going to try, you know, to, to remind God of all these things. So God starts by saying, look, I know everything that you have done, you don't need to remind me. When we get into trouble, yeah, I fasted, I come to liturgy, I attend, you know, the youth meetings, and I do this and I do that. So why, God, you do that to me? The same thing God is telling us. You don't have to remind me. I know what you're doing. So when you're in time of trouble, don't, you know, start reminding me with all what you have done before. That also answers a lot of the people who keep arguing about our deeds. And we don't care about deeds. Only faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saved. He's a person who believed in Jesus Christ. And he became dedicated all his life to Jesus Christ. And he did all these things. Right? Not just by faith. He did faith and deed, but he was missing something else. So when God looks for... He didn't say, I know your faith. Because this is, this is a, you know, everybody believes in God, supposedly. So God is not looking for only faith, but He's also looking for the deeds. He knows what he, this person is doing. The first thing He mentions is deeds. That shows the importance 
of deeds. And St. James said, my brothers, what profit is it if a man says he has faith and does not have works? Can faith save him? You save, great. I'm sorry, you, you, you have faith, great. But faith has to be translated into action. And not just into actions, but into love as well. And you cannot bear those who are evil. So even not tolerating evil, not tolerating sin is acceptable. Is you know considered to be as a virtue for this, you know bishops. If you look at all this, all this verse two and three, you read this. I wish I can do half of these things. Even one of these things, not all of them. Look how much this person done. Works, labor, patience. Cannot bear those who are evil. You tried those pretending to be apostles. So he had even those false apostles and false you know, teachers coming in and trying to influence his church and force themselves on him. Uh, and found them liars. You have born and have born and have patience for my name's sake. So this is this is a wonderful person, right? Great. If I you know again if we do any of these things we would be feel that we're already in heaven and you know wings are popping up, you know, and the halo's up there and you know, how come you guys don't see it? But I can do all this without love, which means it really doesn't count. It's really not going to be effective because what God looks for is the heart. Where is your heart? And Abuna asked in the liturgy, you know, in the Anaphora when he starts the prayers and starts offering the sacrifice, where are your hearts? We can't offer a sacrifice and our hearts are outside, at work, at home, on, in the TV, or somewhere else. Our hearts has to be where we offer our sacrifice where we do our deeds where we, where we labor and where we put our efforts yes ma'am okay. so what is this first love don't, don't treat me. <laughs> what is the first love think, think for a little bit what is the first love what is the strongest love you know, especially as young people experience. What is, you know, the strongest love that, you know, the person experience? We're talking about humans. We're talking about us as humans. What is our, the strongest love that we feel? It's the first, you know, the first love that always leaves, you know, if a person loves someone else, especially if that's the first time they love with all their heart, that stays with them all their life, usually, becomes the most effective because, you know, especially as young people, the emotions are strong and they're powerful and they overtake, a lot of times they overtake us, that becomes the strongest love. If you got, you know, people in the 60s and 70s and, you know, talk to them about love, it's not the same as you talk to 17, 18-year-old, you know, about love. The emotions are different. When we come close to Christ, when we get to know Christ, whether, you know, that's in our teens or 20s or 30s or, or whatever. Usually the first come back to Christ, even if we are born Christians, even if we live as Christians. But when we really start knowing Him, we come in with a very strong passion and with a very strong 
trying to be as good as we can. As we have realized how much God loves us, we start, we want to love Him back as much as we can. This is ideal if it happens while we're young and our emotions are still strong. If we wait until we're old and our emotions slow down, it's not going to be as effective as it is when we're young and our emotions are still hot and pure. That's why also it's, it's very important to try to seek that first love as early as possible. So it becomes the strongest love in my life and not secondary love not to love you know somebody else first and that becomes the first love in my life and then Christ becomes the second third or fourth person I love right? he should be the first one I love and should be the strongest love I have in my life however unfortunately after we get through this first love and the this wonderful feeling of the first love with Christ and you know I want to dedicate my life to him I want to be as good as I can be I want to stay away from sin and so on and we get into life after a while sometimes some of us if not all of us <coughs> end up to be deviated a little bit occupied busy even if we are still involved in service even if we are heavily serving God and attending church and you know doing everything the strength of the emotions and the love in our heart you know dwindles down and it's not there anymore so I become a routine follower. Instead of struggling in fasting and trying to push myself, say, hmm, I try to find excuses for myself not to fast or to make the fast early. Instead of, you know, pushing myself for prayers and for, you know, tasbiha and for the liturgy and so on, find excuses to skip sometimes or, for, you know, relax or whatever. Because I know better, I can give myself excuses. A lot of us do that, you know, no, 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 it's okay, I can do that, I know it's not that really bad. I, I read in this book that this is not really how it used to be done in the 14th century and 13th century, and because of my knowledge, I can make these decisions and, you know, give my own, myself my own absolution and, you know, get going. So we end up to be, you know, lukewarm a little bit or, you know, not as hot as we used to be. And... To God, this is not acceptable. Look at the warning that He's going to give to this servant. Or I will come to you quickly and will remove your lampstand. And unfortunately, that's what happened. When this bishop and this church did not go back to the first love and the, you know, the fury of the first love, that church was removed. You go back to Ephesus today and you, you, know, you barely find Christians there. You find a strong church that has a, an epistle written to it in the New Testament and mentioned by name and revelation. And now it's almost gone. It's not completely gone. That's because they lost the first love. We'll go back to St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians and says, Though I speak with tongues of men and, angel, of, and of angels and have no charity have become as a sounding brass or as a tinkling symbol and though I have prophecies and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith 
so as to move mountains and do not have charity, I am nothing. By the way, charity here, if you look at the actual word of charity, is agape. As I leave that first. Oops, First Corinthians thirteen. I like this tool. Uh, that's because that you know you're not an electrical engineer. You're civil now, so forget about. You need an electrical engineer to get it to work for you. As you can see, you know, charity is translated to agape. That's original word agape, and that's you know, it's love without expecting a reward. Abuna in the liturgy again, go back and say for those who are trying to capture the liturgy and you know all that. Uh, and he he prays, you know, says the love of the. You know, only because, you know, the love of the Father, uh, Agape, right? Agape is the same love that St. Paul is mentioning here, which is love without reward. Okay, there are three types of love in the Greek word. We'll get that. Uh, agape, philo, and eros. So, that's the highest form of love. So St. Paul even saying, I can do everything. I can do prophecies, I can serve, I can have faith, I can move mountains, but if I have no love, I'm nothing. So in everything you do, don't stop your service because say the service is taking me away. Don't stop your you know your activities or involvement with other people because saying that it's taking me away. But sit down and ask yourself, am I doing this out of love or basically out of you know showing off or just being in completely involved and forgot my original reason behind doing all this which is love we'll be done in a minute right. so things that can distract us from the first love things like you know obligation occupation you know being occupied with other things finding the word is interesting unfortunately sometimes we do that other desires gets into our heart other than Christ. So what is the remedy for that? Remember where you have fallen and repent. Because God calls that forgetting or forsaking the first love is a sin and he f- fell into sin. So remember where you fell from and do the first work. So if my first work was standing up and praying, my first work was to dedicate some time for God, him and I by ourselves sitting down and praying I need to go to do these things and not just keep overwhelmed with service and be occupied all the time or overwhelmed with work just concentrating on service because I know a lot of you guys serve here but uh, unfortunately a lot of times when we end up serving we end up forgetting why we're there and the punishment is I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent so there's repentance for forsaking the first love requires repentance. And here's also another, something else we need to look at and analyze what Christ is saying. At the beginning, he starts by nice words and complimenting the, the bishop. The rebuke is one sentence. And then he goes back and compliments him again. So even our speech, when we're dealing with people, let's try to follow the same style. Let's try to use what the Lord have used and remind people with their 
good things because you know instead of just keep rebu- rebuking them and you know arguing with them even when the bishop forgot his first love who started the dialogue who started approaching the other did Christ ap- start approaching or did he wait for the bishop to approach him Christ always starts even if we're saying even if we're far away Christ would always start uh Nicola, Nicolaitans, this is, uh, again, some people say that uh, attributed to uh, Nicholas, one of the seven deacons, and there's a lot of reasons, you know, they attribute why he, you know, he ended up in that uh, teaching, but the main teaching is that he said that the body is one thing and the spirit is a different thing, so even if the body sins, who cares, as long as the, sin, and the spirit doesn't sin, so let the body, you know, does whatever it wants, fornication, adultery, you know, gluttony, anything, it's, it's okay. Alright, All right. so the rewarding, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. This is something that we need to focus on. Again, Christ is always asking for active listening, not passive listening, active listening. I listen and do. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The tree of life, we see that in Genesis. Uh, we'll go back to Genesis, and when Adam and Eve fell, and Jehovah God said, Behold, the man has, co- has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Jehovah God sent him out of from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had, you know, been taken. He put in a cherubim to guard the garden and guard, the, you know, the tree of life. So, what is the tree of life? Yeah, but what is it? To live eternally. How can we live eternally? Is it really a fruit that, you know, we eat, we live eternally? Exactly. And who is eternal life? Christ. What did Christ say? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the eternal life or to the tree of life is Jesus Christ himself. And we receive, you know, a sample of that, again, communion every week or every day. Uh, and that's the ultimate reward. Our ultimate reward is to be in heaven always with God and live forever. By the way, the tree of life is different than the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He did not eat of the tree of life. And God forbade him from eating the tree of, you know, of life after he sinned. Because if he lived forever, he would always live in the sinful nature. So that's why God allowed him to die. So he can be recreated again and resurrected and live eternally in a saintly way. Okay. Alright, that's, that's it. Please... Go over the next six churches and try to summarize them and work on this table. I'll try to send the email this week, uh, promise. Again, the church, problem facing the church, how Christ appears, remedy, warning, and reward.
Okay. And your reward for this time is the cookies and uh, the soda. That's the only reward I can give. Okay, any questions? I uh, will see what Mary's kind of. Yeah, what <laughs> depends on the kindness of Mary, not me. Uh, any questions? Okay, thanks.